This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Uh, The headlines were everywhere in 2009. The first Black woman to serve as CEO of a Fortune 500 company. But the real headline might be, why is that such stunning news? And how did this woman get there? And why at this Fortune 500 company? And what will it take for this to happen to more Black women? That's the story we get to read in Ursula Burns' memoir, Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. Yes, Ursula Burns was the CEO of Xerox for seven years and is on the boards of ExxonMobil and Uber and Nestle and led President Obama's STEM Education Coalition and has been on many, many top lists and has had an illustrious career and impact worldwide. Yet, It is her journey that deserves the headlines and contains ingredients of grit and wisdom and support and one spectacular mother. Ursula Burns, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me, Roxanne. You have the dream job, my dream (laughs) job, a bookstore. That's one of the things I would love to to get it was in. my dream job. I left Wall Street to open a bookstore. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful occupation. Yeah. Well, if you ever need a job, let me know. There's a bookstore <laughs> you can work in. Uh, so let's start with that amazing mother, um, Olga Raquel Burns. Um, I can. I would have loved to meet her with, and probably you would too, with hindsight have a million other new questions for her, but she was, as an immigrant from Panama, a single mother in the projects of the Lower East Side of New York City, and as someone who never earned more than $5,000 a year, how did she manage to keep you and your brother, and eventually your sister, safe, educated, and equipped to thrive? Um, I think fundamentally, it was with maniacal dedication. Uh, she made it her her life to assure that my brother, my sister, and I um, stayed on the right course, had the right values, were protected, um, were pushed, had confidence in ourselves. Think about all of the things that you know a parent can do. My mother literally. You know, in hindsight, after she died, I realized that she had a singular focus, and that was to make sure that we, um, as she would always say to us, left behind more than we took away, Mm. that we actually approached the world in a fulsome, positive way, that we understood that we were in control. She would always say to us and to me, the world doesn't happen to you, Max. You have to happen to the world. She had this fundamental believe that there were three assets that she had in her life, only three, my brother, my sister, and I, and she was going to cherish them, those assets, nurture them, protect them, et cetera, et cetera. She was just, like I said, maniacal about this. And that's how she did it. She didn't have any- And Ursula, what do you think you realized? I mean, did you realize how poor you were? Did you realize what it- took and sacrifice on her part? Or were you like any good kid sort of oblivious to it all going on? Yeah, I point this out in the book. I was totally and completely oblivious until I was about 16 years old. And that was when I realized, you know, because when I looked at my mother, (laughs) I'm sure this way my kids look at me. My mother died when she was 49 years old. Mm. She was 49 years old. So when I was 16 years old, she was 30, 41 or 40, you know, so she was very young woman, but she looked older. She seemed older to me. So she was, she was struggling. And I realized it very clearly when I was about 16, she was struggling from the day I was born and she, and she was carrying the weight of many people from the day I was born, you know, a burden of, 
single parenthood, the burden of living in a, in a tenement housing project that we actually got upgraded to, to go live in the projects, which was literally the moving on up moment, moment for us. She literally didn't have enough money. You think about all of the, all of the isms that you have. She was, you know, a woman, she was poor, she was black, all of these things. She, she had that from the begin from the, the time I recognized her. And when I was 16 years old, when I was in high school, I think I was a junior in high school. Yeah, junior in high school, I realized, wow, wow, she was struggling. She got sick. She had mm. um, a lung problem. She, you know, she got through that fine. But I remember when she came home, how weary she was and how, how difficult her life was. And that was the first time I said that my job here is to make sure that I make enough money as quickly as possible to rescue her from where she was living in this conditions that she was under. We didn't know this. You said it, Roxanne. We, I mean, literally, you know, here we're going merrily along. I mean, you had food. We had food, not the greatest food, but it was always tasty. Yeah. Our, we lived in a horrible building, but our house, our apartment was organized and clean. We, you know, we had the normal mice and cockroaches, but our house, our apartment had significantly less than anyone else because she was maniacal about keeping it clean and preventing all of this stuff. We went to good schools, the best that she could afford, which was parochial school. We happened to be Catholic, so it was useful, but we went to a Catholic school, um, grade school, all, for me, grade school, all the way up to, you know, I got out of high school. So I'm living in this little bit of a bubble that was a tough bubble because it was clear that yeah. we were not living anywhere near like up to quote unquote standard, but we were comfortable and we were safe and we were loved and nurtured. We were cared for and we had, my mother had this way of making it not us, if you know what I mean, not, mm -hmm. we were not poor, we were living in poor surroundings. And it, so it was never about us, it was about, uh, we were strong, we were worthy, we were nurtured we just had to get figure out a way out of us out of our situation and we'd be you know propelled into another place it was a, it was kind of amazing when when i look back on it and how insightful and foresightful she was and how just like i said dedicated and maniacal she was and ursula at the time because you know there was a there's an article we'll we'll get to that was in a, a paper uh, the other day about the toxic trope of black exceptionalism that uh, I want to get your thoughts on. But how similar or different was your mom to other moms at the at Baruch? Yeah. Uh, you were in the Baruch Housing uh, Project. Because, yes, I was. Yes, I was. You know, was she distinguishable even then? My mother had a, we had a tight group of friends and neighbors that we all hung out with. My mother had, so I would say in that group, absolutely not. Absolutely not. We, you know, we had very good friends, the Torres family, the Alston family, the Holders. They were families. Some of them had two parents at home. Um, most of the time they had one, you know, one, and it was almost always the, the, the female. But they, I would say in that grouping, absolutely not. All of these parents, we looked out for each other. So, you know, the saying, yeah. the village, we really did have the village. So I, I say stories. I remember my, my brother, my sister, and I always laugh about, we would, if we did something wrong at the beginning of the block, well, let's say we did something like, I don't know, say some bad word. By the time we got to our apartment in the middle of the block, every parent on the block <laughs> had already hit us 10 times, right? So, by the time, and then my mother, when we got home, my mother would hit us again to make sure that we understood. So there was this, this nurturing element of many of the families in the, in the neighborhood, in the quote unquote, the ghetto that I grew up in. And that's one of the things that, that I talk about in the book about the fact that, you know, th this exceptionalism, people would say to me, oh my God, you're so amazing. And I always said that that, that kind of rung untrue to me because I knew very clearly other families. I mean, literally other people, other mothers, and, or mothers and fathers who had children who they tried like heck to keep their kids in, in line. They sent them to the best schools that they could possibly afford, which generally weren't that great. They actually gave them the best food they could afford. They gave them, you know, we had access to camps. We would get magazines that literally we would go to thrift shops. Mother would go to thrift shops and get magazines. And we would, we would be forced to kind of read them because she wanted us to have access to 
to something other than this relatively small, narrow, and not very hopeful world that we lived in, you know, immediately. So speaking of getting hit, um, you went to a Catholic parochial school uh, that seemed by any standard today to be clearly abusive. Um, But did it seem like it then? And how do you see it in hindsight as having been a contributing factor to your success. Yeah, I, I, I tell you, this is something that's also, it's not only the school that was, that by today's standard would be considered just more than abusive. It would be considered highly abusive. I mean, today you couldn't, you couldn't do anything like what they did, to, like they did to us when, when I was going to school. But even the parenting process back then was significantly more physical, at least in our neighborhoods i mean my house too yeah we literally you know you did you opened your mouth the wrong way and you get it, it you'd be bopped i i i have no confusion about the fact that this was a positive contributor to my life wow. I, none at whatsoever i don't believe by the way that it was necessarily positive for my sister or yeah. my brother but for me it actually is it was i i, I was aware of where to fight, if you like, what battles to to pick, and that was one. I also was very aware of the standards, particularly for my mother, that um, she expected. There was very little confusion. I also was aware when we were pulling, pushing her too far, when we were like overstepping our boundaries, because she would kind, it would kind of build up, if you know what I what I mean. I actually don't believe that it's necessarily appropriate today. I think that there are more um, parents have learned different ways to deal with uh, discipline. But, and, and for example, both my kids, I have two children and I don't, I've never hit either of them, but I, I, but I don't at all uh, feel poorly or like I was abused with my parent, with my mother hitting me, yeah. my, my teachers hitting me. It's really strange. It's kind of a strange dichotomy. Like, but I think we were at a time when, when there was just not enough space for messing around. So it was a very quick and efficient way to kind of communicate when you should stop, um, and when you know when you have to line up, and what was expected of you. It, it may not have been the most um, graceful way, but it was very effective. If you're like me, and have been thinking about losing the same five pounds or 10 pounds or 15 pounds over and over again and have tried diets that don't work out, you might want to do what I ended up doing is I stumbled on Noom.com. And what I liked about Noom is it didn't just talk about what you ate, but how you eat or what your goals are and helps you build new habits. And I like it since it doesn't take a lot of time, it's personalized, it seems to understand that you need some food knowledge and some flexibility in order to meet your goals. So I loved their, you know, I guess I would call it a cognitive behavioral approach. And I really would encourage you to try it because based on what I read, 80% of people who start this program finish it and over 60% have stuck with it after a year. So that that sounds pretty appealing. So I encourage you uh, to try it. And all you need to do to sign up for a trial is go to noom.com, N-O-O-M.com slash just the right book. So I, I'm excited about it, and I hope you sign up and get excited about it as well. Go to noom.com, N-O-O-M.com, slash just the right book. One of the things that was really striking about your education to me, so you went to Cathedral High School, and then you went to Brooklyn Polytech. But at Cathedral High School, you were part of the uh, program that was called, um, it, it, yeah. well, I have it written down. 
the uh, the acronym began with an H. Yeah, the Higher Education Opportunity Program. The ER right. Program. But it was um, not at Cathedral. It was a program that I got access to when I was a senior in, at Cathedral when I was applying to colleges, and it was it was it, it still exists um, today. It's a New York State program. And it, it is for students who are, who have what, what I would, who have quote unquote potential. So they didn't score as well as you would need to score to get into the schools that you were applying to, but you had, but you scored well enough <clears throat> for them to consider letting you into these schools. Um, and the state of New York would give you a couple of things that were important. For me, it was vital. For my brother, it was also vital. One is that they gave you funding to go to school. I mean, without this, there was no way in the world that we could go to school. So they paid for your tuition and gave you a stipend to get to and from school and to have some um, little bit of spending money, which generally didn't go very far. But you know, you had enough money to not not starve to death, and you could get to school, and your books were paid for. The second is that you had a program in the college, you know, office in the college that gave you um, additional support. So tutoring, uh, access to tutoring and the like, because we didn't start at the same place that if somebody who went to Brooklyn, to Brooklyn Tech or Bronx Science or Stuyvesant did, because literally that's where the other kids in my class had come from. So there's a second they gave you tutoring. And then the third thing that they, that they gave you was um, summer program to ready you for this transition that you were going to you were making from you know your high school to college from having a very kind of controlled environment to being literally free in a school where you select your own classes etc. So um, the HIA program saved myself and my brother's um, life and you know from, from an educational standpoint there was no. There was no uh, substitution for it. And one of the things that I speak about a lot, and one of the things I spent a lot of time in Washington speaking about was these types of programs, particularly in the last administration were under unbelievable attack to be defunded and to be, but if you did that, then people who were close, like I was and like my brother were, we were, we were fairly well-educated. You know, we went to the best school that we could possibly go to. We had good study habits. My high school was, a great school, but nowhere near as well equipped. It was a girls Catholic high school. It was nowhere near as well equipped as like the Bronx Science or Stuyvesant, et cetera. But it, there was awareness that we, that the students there with some help could probably succeed. And it was a program put in place to give us that help. And nowadays that I'm hoping that it's coming back, but nowadays, or at least last administration, it was very, very difficult to get um, continued support for those types of programs. But Ursula, one of the things, uh, so what I was really struck with, which with this HEOP program was how all encompassing it was, that it anticipated where failure could pop up. It understood it in such a multidimensional way. And I've done a fair amount of work over the last 30 years in um, education reform and the thing that I don't understand is this program looks like it works. I know it's a New York State program. Why hasn't it scaled? Why hasn't the principals, because you hear about programs that go into inner cities, they pluck the kids out, and basically they're throwing them to the wind, even if they give them the money. They're then isolated at their school. They don't have support. They they feel like they don't belong here or there. Why hasn't a program like this scaled? It's a great, great question. Um, and you know, when I was working with in, in education in the Obama administration, um, you know, there were lots of questions about not HEOP per se, but programs like this and how how do we replicate them? There is one thing that's important to note about HEOP and about the program is that you have to get to it first, if you know what I mean. You have right, to, oh, I do. You have to make it through through 16 years of education 
you know, sorry, to, throughout 12 years of education before you can access it. And what we're finding now, is, so you have to perform well enough, have enough aptitude and access in your high school to get you at least close enough to reach. What, we're, what we found and what we spent a lot of time on when I was working in, in education, in, the, in STEM education, particularly in the Obama administration was that the failure, the breakage starts so much earlier. So, you know, I had made it, I had a whole bunch of stuff that was, I went to a reasonably good high school. You know, we had, so, you know, I, I had a reasonably good um, structure at home that, that made it possible for me to, to actually get to the point where I graduated from high school with, was graduating from high school with the competency to take the PSAT and be recognized. What happens is the breakage yeah. generally happens so much earlier that the kids don't even make it through. You know, we have these blacked out schools where the graduation rate is 30% or lower and the, the actual competency rate is in the single digits where people literally cannot, they wouldn't be able to make it to take the PSAT and, and get options. But I do agree that for people who are that close, um, who can, who have been graced with enough um, access, support, whatever the hell to get to high school and, and get to senior year high school and be close enough to be grabbed. This is a, a program that worked and could, and I think it still does work. I haven't, when I started writing- I was curious was about that yeah. because the other, the other work that a, a lot of the attention that I've done is through zero to three because- mm -hmm you know, to your point about you have to first get through 16 years, what, what is, is understood now is if you don't start kindergarten ready to learn to read, when you get to fourth grade, if you can't read to learn, you're cooked. You're cooked. You you're are cooked, cooked right there in fourth grade. Right. And that's, I mean, there's so many, the antidotes are so clear. The facts are so clear. The statistics are so clear. Everything that's what infuriates me. Yeah, that this should be something that's, that is fixable. Now, I do tell you that I, I travel around the city and listen to, to you know, ads, whatever. I don't watch a whole lot of TV, but the, this whole thing about, um, you know, pre-K for all, this, this is to attack the, exactly this problem. Oh, yeah. Right? That's so right. I, and I... I don't know. And that's all, encouraging. Yeah, that's in, that, exactly. That's encouraging because I don't know all of the antidotes, uh, you know, all of the details about what's happening in that program, but it is, you said it right. It is, it is 100, the alignment is so clear, right? So you, if you can yeah. get them in the school by the time they're three years old and they can actually learn how to sit still enough, long enough to learn, to use their imagination, to work in a team, to et cetera, et cetera, read to organize their thoughts, reasonable things, not, I'm not talking about crazy you know, rocket science here, then the chances of these kids being success, successful increase by, you know, hundred percent or, or said it another way. If you don't have that, the chances of failure increase by a thousand percent. So it's, it is something that we should spend more time um, just really engaging in because, you know, there should be, it shouldn't be that easy to determine yeah, failure or success, right? It shouldn't be zip codes that determine that. That's right. That, that, that's a good way to put it. So, all right, it's the early 70s. You've managed to plow your way through. You've got HEOP helping you. And you've been um, cleverly advised to either pick teaching, nursing, or the nunnery. Right. So you, like any Black girl in the ghetto, decided you were going to be an engineer. Yeah, right. I, I, How the I, hell did you come up with that? And, and, and you know, I say this, uh, Roseanne, uh, Roxanne, it's that you, how about this? How about this for career counseling? How about luck? <laughs> how about literally 100% yeah. luck? This is another thing that's very frustrating, right? Luck. Here's how, here's how it happened. I did well on the PSATs. Well for my school on the PSAT. And every couple of weeks when you're a senior or a couple of, I don't know how often it was, but we had a lay teacher come in to give us counseling, right? You know, guidance counseling for, you know, what, you, what you're gonna do. And the nuns had made it clear that you had three choices. You know, you could be a nun, you could be a, a teacher, you could be a nurse. I was actually kind of interested in teaching, but I, I definitely wasn't interested in nunnery. Nursing was not, while I have massive respect, it was not, you know, I didn't like blood, I didn't like the whole thing. So I figured I couldn't do that. <laughs> so it was basically teaching, that was it. That was what I was gonna do. 
And fortunately, I had a counselor came in and said, you know, you did really well on these PSATs in math. And why don't you, you know, go to the college, to the, to the library and look at some options about where you, where you could go to college. Because that was how it started. I didn't know a lot about colleges. I knew about Pace University, you know, things that were in my neighborhood. Yeah. I knew about that. I knew about Cooper Union. I knew about these kinds of schools, but I didn't know about, I didn't even really know about Harvard. I had heard about it or Yale. I'd heard about it, but it was not in my universe of, of things to kind of really get engaged in. I went to the library and looked at this book. And you didn't said, summer in Kenny Bunkport to I like talk to your neighbors. And I say this as well. You know, people said when I went to the, was when I, when I was in high school, um, you know, one of the great things about my high school is that it was reasonably diverse. You know, it had some kids who had a little bit more money than none, right? So we had middle, some middle-class kids and um, we had also Jewish kids in my, in my high school, which was interesting. And because it was one of the best schools in the neighborhood that you could afford to, to go to. Mm-hmm. And they said to me, they were going on vacation. And I remember saying, vacation? Isn't this an interesting theory? <laughs> vacation for me was that you just didn't go to school. If you know what I mean? It wasn't like you went somewhere to vacation. You know, we would just stay home. Which was, by the way, we loved it. It wasn't like a bad thing, but anyway. So I go to I go to the co- to the high school uh, to the library outside the high school, and I take out this book. You can't take it out, but I take it off the shelf. Called the Baron's Book of um, Colleges and Universities. It's still something that's available today, but now it's on the internet. There's not a physical paper a version of it. I'm sure there is, but you don't have to have one. And I looked in this book. Careful, Ursula. I have a bookstore. Ah, okay. Is the Baron's <laughs> book still out there? I don't even yes. know. Okay, got it. Remember, the Barron's book is a great book, and it tells you um, a couple of things. One is what, what careers pay the most after four years of college, which was an interesting thing. I didn't even know I was, you could find this out. What, um, so that was one thing I found out. What the most competitive, you know, they have a highly competitive, most competitive, very competitive, competitive, what those schools look like, you know, who, who they were. And I realized, Oh, I looked in the book and it said, oh my goodness, the best the career that you go to after four years of college and get paid the most is chemical engineering. Literally, Roxanne, I decided I was going to be a chemical engineer, literally sitting in the library saying, hmm, I have to go to school for four years. My mother made it clear that you will, that failure in her eyes was that you have to go to college. She'll figure out a way to pay for it. She didn't really, we did all together, yeah. um, but you have to finish it. And so I said, okay, if I have to go to school for four years, what do I, so I said, I was gonna become a chemical engineer. And then I decided I was gonna to apply to all of the very competitive or highly competitive schools. What the heck? I mean, this is not the best, this is not the best sort of options in the world. Some of them I couldn't apply to, I, you know, West Point was on there and that was not an option for me and things like that. But Yale was on there. And I always remember saying, Yale, it's in Connecticut. That's not too far. Not too far. Well, it's like, I knew where Connecticut was. I hadn't been to it, but I knew where it was. And I said, okay, I'll apply to Yale. Brooklyn Poly was on it and it was in the most competitive staff. So I can go there. Um, uh, City College, all these places were, were there as well. So I decided that day when I was a rising uh, senior, that I was gonna to go to college to become a chemical engineer and I was gonna to apply to one of these seven schools. I applied to all of them. Another uh, benefit of some of the programs was that they, if you recall, applications were $60, $70 for each college application. Yeah. There's no way in the world we could afford a college application. People don't understand when I say that. We did not have- Like right there is a problem. We did not have $60. $60. We had no, we had nowhere, no, there was no way in the world I could apply to one school without help. We did not have $60. Literally, we didn't have any dollars. We, every month we would literally be just at the edge, right? At every month we would be, there would be five more days than we had money, almost surely. So we were always scrambling. My mother was always scrambling. So fortunately there was another program that helped me to pay for that. That's one of the reasons why People are always very surprised that this is not for any for consumption except for to understand the context. I am extremely generous. I literally, I make money, give it away. And people don't understand. My God, they said, my goodness, Ursula, you're so I said, Well, how do you think I got here? Yeah. I got here because someone somewhere, either a taxpayer or a philanthropist or somebody decided to fund something that I had access to. And it, you know, it could be that far away. It, you know, they they don't know me but they knew that there were people who could use the, the, the grace that, that they had 
imparted. So anyway, I did that. I went to college, you know, I finished high school. Everything was fine. Applied to all of these schools. I got into a whole bunch of them. I mean, everything you can, a whole bunch of them you can imagine. And I wanted to go to a place because at this point, like I said, it was very aware my mother was struggling. That was close enough to home that I could actually live at home or at least have kind of real quick access to it. So I went to, I went to Brooklyn Poly and I basically lived at home through my undergraduate and my graduate degree. Mm. And I'm very happy that I did that because my mother died um, three years, four, three and a half years after I finished grad school. Yeah, you were 25, right? 25, right. So right after I finished grad school, she, she, had, she died and I was happy that I was able to spend that time with her. her. Yeah, spend that time to be close enough to her to, to for her to see that I was at least um, on the right path. On was, the way. Yeah, on the way. I was on the way. And she knew my, my sister was struggling at the time. And, she, you know, she did for many years after that, but she also made it clear to me that one of my responsibilities was that my sister could be nobody else's responsibility but mine and my brother. But yours. That's it. So, and Ursula, you know, I want to fast forward a little bit. You very successfully get through um, Brooklyn Polytech. You, again, with the advice of a key person, decide to go to graduate school directly to get a master's. And after an internship at Xerox, you're hired um, at Xerox. So I was struck by a couple of things reading uh, the book. One is you describe yourself as blunt. Um, and you also describe yourself as introverted. Those don't seem like the ideal CEO traits um, that at least stereotypically we expect. And along the way, there are people, even when you annoy them, we'll talk about Waylon Hicks in a minute or Paul Allaire, even when you annoy them and you think you're gonna get fired, they end up becoming your mentors and your supporters. And one of the things that you hear women talk a lot about is they don't end up with mentors. And so I'm curious what combination, other than your like charm, we'll leave your charm, <laughs> you know, what was the combination of things? I mean, you had Vernon Jordan, you had Waylon Hicks, you had Ken Chenault, you had Paul Allaire. All these people were like giving you advice, promoting you, you know, and obviously you were working your ass off, you were obviously smart, but what combination of things made that happen? I think it was a couple of, of things. I, I, someone asked me, what's this book about? And I said, the book was about people who help. Right. That's what the, the whole book is about, people who helped. I think that the biggest attributes that came together was this curiosity. I, I literally was engaged. I was, and still am. I'm always, you know, I'm not, uh, not social, you know, I don't do the normal social things, whatever those are, where you play, you know, hang out with, I'm per, I prefer to be alone. But when I'm with people, I actually engage. I have an opinion. I actually like to speak and debate and talk about things. So one thing that they saw, I think that everyone saw was this like, this curiosity, mm -hmm. this interest, this interest in things, like trying to figure out, well, how, you know, how did that happen? Why did you do that? What, tell me what's going on. So this curiosity. Second is I always, Roxanne is amazing, had an opinion. My mother used to say to me, you have, the, I have this ability to be wrong and strong. So, I mean, <laughs> I, which, which is not the, not the, not the best combination of things. No. But, <laughs> Uh, so even if when I even when I was wrong, I literally had had um, passion about certain things, and I would actually be really w willing to debate it, to to learn more about it, and so this curiosity, I think. And then the third was that I, even though it didn't always work, if you know, <laughs> I listened. I, I actually yeah. am one of the few people who. Uh, people say to me, you know, you should do politics. I said, well, one of the things about 
politicians that get me a little bit nervous is that they're never allowed to say that they were wrong ever in their lives. Yeah. I wake up every day. That and wouldn't work for you. It would not work for me because literally the, I change my mind. I change my opinion yeah. as my life goes on. I am not one of these people that, you know, they used to ask, have you ever smoked pot? You know, did you ever smoke pot? Because I never did it or I did it. And I said, I tried it. I didn't, I didn't, didn't like it. It was something, you know, it was a, but this idea that you actually have to know everything and become firm mm -hmm. in it and not turn, not change your mind is something that's very dif difficult for me. So when I engage with someone, literally, I at the end of a conversation, probably not that quickly, but at the end of a set of interactions, literally, I could go from a ah with all these facts, new pieces of information, new perspectives. I will be start at a yes and turn to a no, or start at a no, turn to a yes, and that I think is engaging. That was an engaging part of me, this idea of kind of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Tell me what's going on. Why did you do it that way? Teach me something, learn, you know, that kind of thing. And that, I think that's the, that's the, the benefit. That's the reason why people continue to engage because it was not one way, right? It was not only them giving to me or only me kind of giving to them. It was this kind of back and forth. And how much of that was particular to Xerox? Because reading your book, I was, you know, going back to the um, 70s, right? When Nixon was president and the CEO of Xerox was struck by the kind of racism that was part of the dialogue. So how much of your ability to ultimately become a CEO was particularly suited to the Xerox environment? I think that it's so much I, I say in the book, and I've said it well before I wrote the book, that I was the luckiest person in the world. I picked an amazing career that suited me unbelievably well. And I picked a great college for me that who the heck knew. And I picked an amazing company that lit, this company actually was interested in me. I walked in the door and you should admit, you couldn't imagine how I looked. I had a massive amount of hair. Yeah. I actually spoke faster than anybody you could have possibly imagined. This is, I still had all of the dialect. I still have some of it now. I have a little bit less here. And I, you're not a light-skinned black. No, no, no. I'm a black, black, right? I, I look like, my hair is black, black. My face <laughs> right. is black. I'm like, not, I can't pass for anything but an African-American, right? A, a true, a dark-skinned African-American. And I happened to luck on to stumble into a place that was perfect for me. Perfect. A couple of things. One, they were highly interested, not because of me alone or because of the immediate leader that I had at that point, but because we had a history from the start of this company, this guy, Joseph Wilson, who engaged with the outside world in a way that was what we would call appreciating diversity and inclusion. This was a guy before we had words like a diversity and inclusion. Right now it's hip to say diverse and inclusive. It was even before real affirmative action, right? That came about 10 years later before he did it. He just said, why, well, you know, there's all these guys outside. At that point, they were rioting, right? Outside of his factory, little startup business. He said, well, my God, there are all these people who don't, none of them are inside the, the, the business. Wouldn't it be interesting if we had some of them in that? So we had a history, we had a, we had a practice in our company that appreciated difference, that it was not a shock. It was not everywhere. Don't get me wrong. We didn't have like black people running around everywhere. They were not, but there were, but there were enough where and, and a thought that there could be some value added by having difference in the company. I entered there. We had a and it was practiced. It became part of our company. Second thing is I entered the company during one of its tough times. We, you know, Xerox was always kind of trying to figure out a way to get out of corners. And I joined the company in a year that we had fired 10,000 people from wow. our company at that time. And I was one of the few people in 1982, when I took on a full-time role after, after being an intern and then working through graduate school, that, had, that was walking in the door when people were walking out. They had committed to hiring students. They knew it would be very disastrous if we had all trained and went to somewhere else. So they brought us on board. And I was literally put to work. I mean, real work. I mean, they, they were like, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. Not and you were game. And you were game. And I was game. So literally they were like, try it. They would say, who, you know, you want to go to Japan? I literally remember when somebody actually said to me, do you want to go to Japan? And I was like, Japan? 
you know, I had literally the, the farthest I had been on an airplane was to, I took a train to Florida. The, far, the farthest I had been at that time on an airplane was to fly to Rochester, New York. I'd never, the, I, I didn't even have a passport. The idea that I could go to Japan and do something. So they were, they were game and I was game. It was a perfect place for me. And we, we Xerox had a, a life of getting cornered, getting out, using technology, using our brand to keep getting mm. out, of, out of problems. And it was, for me, it, it opened up opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do things that many people my age in other companies would never have been able to do. Had yeah. to do. And I was always willing. I never had a discussion that said, they would say, go to Japan. And I would say, well, is this going to lead to a promotion? I never had a conversation like that. It was like, go to Japan and Japan. And I would say, oh, okay, what do I need to do that? You just go. Um, can you go live in England for a couple of years? It's like, yeah, I, I got to go talk to my husband. But the answer was, yeah, sure, we'll go do that. It was, I was open and they were open and it matched perfectly. It was a perfect place for me to work. And they didn't try to change me, Roxanne. It was not like, yeah, you have to slow down and you're speaking. There was, they definitely gave me hints and tips about being more acceptable as an executive speaking more slowly, whatever it is, how to, you know, whatever you, you need. But it was not, they were more interested in my brain than they were in anything else. And that was very, very clear from the beginning of time that I walked in the company. And that's one of the reasons why I say in the book, it was, a, this company was so amazing. You know, Anne Mulcahy preceded me, same thing. I mean, this woman, she was a, a woman CEO in a Fortune 500 company during the time when they probably had 10 or less. And then I, I replaced her. So it was a, it's a perfect place. It was a perfect place. So a couple of things I want to make sure we get to, because obviously time is going quick, but it would not be fair to have a conversation with you without talking about one of your biggest supporters. Um, and that is your husband, um, who I'm, you know, please accept my sympathy because I know he passed away, uh, but you describe him as imperfect, but perfect for you. Yeah. So share with us why, who, who Lloyd was. Yeah, he was a complicated guy. And I, I have a saying for him in that he fit in absolutely no box. If you were a fly on the wall in our family, you would say, this is the craziest place in the world. <laughs> I mean, my husband was dyslexic. He was highly disorganized. Sometimes he drank a little bit too much. He was unbelievably brilliant. He was an inventor. Um, he had his own, he was a great cook. He, he and I, in many ways, were opposites. I mean, literally, I am organized visually. I'm organized in process. He, he was just the opposite. He was not easy to contain or control. And I... He was perfect for me because my whole life was about containing and controlling and having someone who I could not do that with, who I could not, who forced me to practice a different set of skills, who forced me to love him, to accept him because I loved him, not because I loved what he did, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. to become like a full person because it, I tell you, but until I met my husband, men, you know, they were great for all of the physical. Sort of reasons, incidental. <laughs> they were they were really incidental in my life. I mean, it's kind of a strange thing to say, but my mother lived a life with absolutely not a male in her life. My uncles, that kind of thing, but no love interest at all. There was never a man in my house ever, except for my uncles, my cousins, you know, that kind of thing. No other. So my mother had... The vision I had was of you. Do you really need these people? It's, you know, it was a strong, complete, amazing woman who kind of took control, and you know, who who I just admired and loved. And then, you know, you go out in the world, you realize there are a lot of purposes for men uh, uh, that are good. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. You don't have to kind of push away from them. And I had to have somebody like Lloyd, who was not easy. He was not an easy husband. He was not. Or like, typical. He was not typical at all. You know, big, he was shorter than, a little bit shorter than I was, massive astro beard, um, came from Bermuda. He, he's, he's disorganized beyond belief. I mean, just crazy kind of guy. He would take, you know, he was sitting at a restaurant 
and he would give us notes about equations that he was thinking about on the napkins, this kind of stuff. And this is how my kids learned a lot of stuff. This guy was perfect because I needed to, I needed someone who I could take care of, but didn't, who I can engage in with and take care of, but who didn't need for me to take care of them. If you know, if you know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. And so he was great. He was perfect for me. I loved him so much. And in 2019, he died. Yeah. Very unexpectedly. And I remember sitting there thinking just how much of a disaster this was going to be. Yeah. How much of a disaster. This is, I'm sorry for crying, but that's I, okay. I, I that's don't do okay. all the time. I just, but how, you know, how horrible this is going to be because I, you know, we, like I said, if you sat on the, if you were flying on the wall, you would say, these people are going to get divorced any minute. <laughs> on any, on any <laughs> other day, thing. on any other day, we argued like you wouldn't believe something. You know, you, we were normal, kind of active, intelligent couple who were both busy and, you know, doing all kinds of things. And I remember when he died, I said to myself, holy crap, the exact thing that I needed all this time, who was yeah. there, is now gone. So what? do you do how do you keep that portion of the motivation going you know mm. work and money was all set my kids were were and still are pretty good i i was well known i you know there was all the stuff that you say yeah, yeah check, check, check 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 yeah no disasters you know how and and there was this feel i had this feeling that it was all useless without lloyd Lloyd. Yeah. yeah. And fortunately, I was able quickly, because of my kids, I got into some really great habits with my kids where every day, because I, I realized this, sorry, I talked to my husband every single day for almost 40 years. Every yeah. day. Now, there were, I'm, I'm sure that there were probably 10 days in these 40 years that we didn't talk. But because I traveled a lot, and because I was maniacal about talking to my kids every day, I would call the house at seven o'clock in the morning, their time, which is when they were waking up to go to school. If I was traveling, for example, and my husband would always answer the phone and I would say, hey, to him, hey, well, you know, what's going on? So we got into this pattern of always um, talking. We always we talked all the time. And it, most of the time it was totally um transactional yeah <laughs> it was like the kids hey, get fed did you pay the electric bill? Did you pay the electric bill you know uh they, they, they put on their gloves can you find a whatever right that and but i remember when he died i i, I happened to be in amsterdam living in i was in our apartment in amsterdam i was living in amsterdam for a while and, and i had called that day i called and it was now nighttime in Amsterdam, so six hours early in the United States, and I still hadn't talked to him. And I, I called again, and I got home, and I called again, and nothing. And then I had a conference call. I did that conference call. And in the conference call, my stepson, my husband's um, oldest child, uh, old, oldest son, he, he, my husband was married before me. He's 20 years older. He had a family before we did, call, had called. And... I'm looking at the phone, you know, the call thing and it's him. And then he, I just let it go because I was on this call. And then he called again and I realized there's something up because Lloyd Jr. doesn't call me twice in a, in a day. And I called him and he told me that my husband had, had passed away. And I, and I just said, wow, this is like, this is the end of, this is the end. I knew it wasn't the end of the world, but this is the end of life as I knew it. This mm -hmm. whole pattern of connection with another person this, this consistency in behavior that you have, a, you know, it goes, you call every day, you, you know, there's a method by which we interacted. There's a whole kind of unspoken habitual type of thing that's comforting and that makes you keep going. Um, that was all gone and had cha that changed. And it was a very, it was very troubling. And fortunately I got through it because I had these two great kids that mm. he gave me. Right? that uh, you know that I now transition I talk to my daughter every day I talk mm -hmm. to my sister every day and I talk to my son 90% of the days and it was a habit that I picked that I adopted because I had to get my 
get through my husband. You know, I had to kind of replace yeah. this thing with my husband and it turned out to be a great habit, particularly during the pandemic. I mean, which was amazing. Um, yeah, so I, you know, a friend of mine calls these marriages that work the way you're talking, the architecture of a marriage, the, the building that sort of houses both of you. And it sounds like what you did was create a new architecture that still contained you. Absolutely. That's what I had to do after my husband passed away. I had to do it because I didn't, because I am organized. I am a creature of habit, habit, visual habit and, you know, action habit. And this gap was too much to just, mm. just let it go. You know, like, well, I'll just, you know, don't, just yeah. don't do anything. I had to replace it with, with something. I know that that sounds all about me. And it is a lot, it was about me. It's also been a good habit for my sister and my, my daughter and my son to have as well that this, particularly when the pandemic came because we were in different places and we had to build a, we had already built this, well, how you, know, every day, how you doing? How's the dog? You and know? you know, Ursula, it's also good modeling because your kids are gonna have to deal with something like this. So I do think that Yes, of course, it was of the moment for you, but it's really for all of you. Exactly. Right. That because they see what that looks like. And just like you wanted to take care of your mother, not that your kids need to take care of you financially. They're not, you know, they're not, they're yeah. not going to pick chemical engineering so they can support you. But kids want to make sure their parents are good. So Yep. It must have been satisfying to them. It's one of their, per, it's one of the, because, almost because of what you just said, because they, uh, they, they're, they don't have to worry about my financial well-being. Right. <laughs> they don't have to worry about where I'm going to live. They don't have to, that stuff. Yeah. So they have to find something to worry about. What they, not, not have to find something in a negative way. I mean, the, the connection. Or maybe they, you have some Jewish blood. Yeah, yeah that, by the way, it's, <laughs> You know, it's, it's the Jewish mother thing or the Catholic mother thing, right? This, right. this guilt and all these kind of connections. I, my kids, fortunately, uh, if there is one thing that has come out of this whole big transition that we went through with my husband, with their father, it was this idea that we needed each other, right? Mm -hmm. We showed, we showed grief in very different ways, very different ways, and but we needed each other to not only to make it through, we had to need each other. We wanted to need each other so that we could need each other. There was a purpose that we had, which is not just to, you know, not just to launch them into the world, but to stay really close to, to them and to love them. And that's, and them to love me and to them to take care of me. So now it's, it's an amazing thing. You, you know it, right? Cause you, you, you when your kids actually call you to check on you. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's not, and it's not, a passive call. It's a real call. Like, how are you doing? It's a <laughs> boy, oh boy, that's an amazing accomplishment that I, I remember when my daughter who calls and says, oh, I haven't talked to you. It's eight o'clock. I haven't talked to you today. I just want to make sure everything is okay. How are things going? And it's not like, oh, it, you know, I should, you know, we call, we talk every day. It's literally, I haven't spoken to you. What's going on? You know, is everything okay? It's this kind of heartfelt thing. My son as well. It's a very good, my sister as well. You know, my brother, I'm close to my brother, but we don't talk every day, which is interesting. Yeah. So Ursula, we, we ran out of time before we talked about that little thing of you being a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. We didn't get to talk about uh, public policy around policing, which I had hoped to get to. We didn't talk about um, your relationship with, um, mentors, but I do want to cover, if we will go over just a few minutes, I want to cover two things, um, even though we're not going to get to that. We can have another conversation some other day. I, of, I really would love to do it. About that little thing of you being a CEO, whatever. But um, the thing that I was um, struck by is, you know, there's kind of a trope about women becoming CEOs when companies are in trouble. And Anne Mulcahy was brought in after Paul's successor, 
two successors failed. Xerox was in trouble. You became the CEO. When there was another pivot point, you had to be, you know, um, strong and right, not strong and wrong, because there was a lot at stake uh, that was going on. Do you think that as females, and I'm talking specifically about you and Anne, but in general, bring a kind of leadership skills that really make them very suited to turning around bad situations because they're, it's not mono to mono. It's not, the egos don't seem to be that involved. Do, do you agree with that or do you disagree? I would say I agree more than I disagree. Okay. I can't be, I, I, I agree significantly more than I disagree. I think that there is a, that there, there are pressures in a company that, that after, <laughs> how do I say this? It becomes more acceptable when, you know, you've tried everything else. Let's, <laughs> let's just try the woman because. Yeah, whatever, get her over here. Let's get her over here to fix it. I think there's some of that for sure. I do also believe that there are some of the lead ups to problems that, show up in in certain ways that the response to that, you can see clearly that, the, and I'll give the example of Anne, she's probably the best example. We needed Anne for sure when she came in. We had a leader before her that was definitely not ideal, um, who was not, who did not build a, a, a sense that we could come together and fight a problem. It was significantly different than that. And her, Anne's EQ, her ability to um, naturally engage with lots of different people and to kind of bring them along was perfect. She was, she, the she of, the, of Anne was perfect for what we needed at the time, her approach. We may have been able to find a man <laughs> somewhere in the company who could have done it, yeah. but I, it was, there was no and doubt. she didn't look like a likely candidate. She wasn't, if you recall. I mean, if you recall the story, she, you know, she was she was in the company for a long time. We had a, a leader who had replaced Paul Allaire. We had one guy who un, unfortunately passed away uh, very unexpectedly, very shortly after he came. Then we had another gentleman who was who had all the bona fides that you can imagine. If you look at his his resume, he was perfect. He didn't particularly business. like him, though, right? I, I, I don't think he was right for the company. I never got to know him well because that was part of the nature of him. He yeah. was not really this, that kind of a noble guy. Um, and this didn't, it just did not work at all. It did not work. And she came in with exactly the right personality mm -hmm. and skill set. But the interesting thing is, Roxana, she, she was in the company for years, 20 years before that. She was working for this guy. I mean, there was, she was there. They could have picked her right before. Yeah, they could have picked her when Paul retired. When, when Paul retired, exactly. They could have done that. She was there, but they thought they needed something else. They went out and found out that that something else was not what they needed. Actually, it was not at all what they needed. And they ended up reverting to Anne, the accidental CEO, right? Mm -hmm. Older. What she, or what she was called, and she was the perfect person, right? She had to do a lot to build back our confidence to actually, you know, square us in what we were really all about. Like this was a technology company. We weren't a sales company. This was a global company. You had to kind of understand those three things. And she was really into assuring that people like me and some other people around me, you know, my peers had the right confidence she gave us the right confidence to go fix this do this do you know mm -hmm. come back to me talk to me but please you know you you have it you know it so it was she was perfect for the time perfect for the yeah time. so Ursula the last uh, before I ask the very last question um so one of the things that I and I assume you worry about is and I've heard you talk about this some is well, Ursula Burns came out of nothing and she got to be the CEO. So the system's working. You know, it's obviously working because Ursula Burns made it. And um, this piece that um, uh, 
was in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, or July 1st, actually. It was called The Toxic Trope of Black Exceptionalism. And it was a piece uh, by a man by the name of uh, Samuel Gitachu, if I'm pronouncing his name right, an Oakland Technical High School um, kid. And he closes the piece with, which I'd like your opinion on, the academic and societal circumstances that made Mr. Ahmeds, who was a, a graduate and a valedictorian success so noteworthy years before Mr. Mohammed or I arrived on campus remained long after the reporters left and the dust settled. When the annual news cycle of underdog valedictorian fades, segregated classrooms endure, these heartwarming stories are a distraction from the reality of our educational system. It's true. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And it's one of the, I, I talk about this a little bit in the book from a completely different and less articulate perspective than this article, which, which I read and recall. You know, my mother, I, I talk about this in the book and I say, the book is about helpers, but you said it in the beginning, think about this. I had this mother that was literally leap, leap tall buildings in a single bound mother. I mean, <laughs> really nobody would consider this um, normal, parenting, right? I had support that was, support and luck that was throughout my career at an exceptional level. I was, I worked harder than most by a, by a lot. I mean, I was just built for this kind of like, mm -hmm. put your head down, study. I, I really relished all of this stuff. And I made it, quote unquote, with all of the help, etc. And people say, well, see, 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 See? <laughs> well, Done. That's right. Everybody else who failed is because they didn't do all of that stuff. It's on them. You know, the last administration said, I mean, I did it. You know, I, I survived COVID. I remember this literally. I survived COVID. It's not that bad. I think if we actually, if we believe that five, if we believe that me, my life is a normal life, if we believe that my life was an ordinary life, if my life were a normal and ordinary life, then we would have significantly less poverty. We would have right. significantly less single parenting. We would have significantly less drugs. If you believe that my life was the way that most people live their life, then the world would be different. We have to make my life a more standard. Typical, normal. We have to make it more normal. And by the way, like I said, how did I get to engineering school? I mean, I literally got to engineering school, but I, because I happened to go to the friggin' library on a day and open up the book, it, that yeah. can't be the counseling that we have. Now, how did I get to college? I happened to find out about this HEOP program. How to, how to, how to, how to, you know, how did I get from chemical engineering to mechanical engineering? Literally, I was gonna leave school. I hated chemistry so much. I got somebody, it can't be this. This can't, luck, chance, um, you know, work above and beyond the call of for duty. A mother who's willing to sacrifice her life literally for her children can't be the basis by which people who look like, yeah. only people who make look it. like me make it. That's what we're, but that's what this exceptionalism points to. It says, well, they did it. So if, you're, if you happen to be, a, a child whose parents are just regular parents who work every day, who try to do the best that they can, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And something misses, they don't get it and they fall into the wrong hands. If they happen to be in the wrong neighborhood and murdered by a policeman, all those people, all those people failed. Yeah. And that's the so, way it is. We've been talking with uh, Ursula Burns, uh, the author of Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. And Ursula, I have been, um, in reading this book, struck by your combination of confidence and humility and um, your ability to avoid the female trap of, you know, working to get positive feedback and instead being strong and wrong and strong and right. Um, and uh, reading your book, 
um, reminded me about, you know, as we say in Yiddish, the role of mazel, the role of grit, um, the role of Olga Burns uh, and her advice to you. And this is a book that we all need, um, we all need to read. I was struck by the fact that you chose a black leather jacket, not exactly the wardrobe of a corporate titan, Ursula, <laughs> and probably most telling um, about the um, combination of qualities that you've brought to one full and exciting and accomplished uh, life. So. Thank you for spending the time and uh, thank you for all the good work that you keep doing. Thank you for an, an unbelievably enjoyable uh, discussion today. I mean, if you seem like, like my mom, I mean, not that you're old enough <laughs> to be my mom, but just a great conversation. Thank you so much. I, I want to meet you. And I'm well, gonna we'll do that by coming to your store. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm sure. And maybe, maybe um, you can give me some hints and tips about some books I should be reading. All right, great. Ursula, it was lovely to meet you. Thank you so much. Take care. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.